Hello. Uh, hi, Kara. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. How about you? <laughs> I'm okay. I'm okay. Survive the holidays, so that's a good thing. <laughs> A year ago, I was talking to you because you were trying to reboot the public space committee. You know, I think we all had high hopes for this year. Uh, I, I think in some ways, in terms of talking about the public realm, you know, this this year, well, it sucked. Uh, it did really challenge us to to look at those issues and to really explore, like, h- how far we could go with it. And, and so given that, I, I wanted to ask you your public realm resolutions. is to question the concept of safety in public space. I want to ask, safety for whom? So over the past year, we've seen massive protests across Canada and all around the world demanding an end to anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism Mm -hmm. in the wake of the police killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. But as you know, this isn't only a U.S. issue. So in the GTA, we've had too many cases, especially this past spring, of people in crisis uh, especially people of color who have been killed in altercations with police when they needed help the most. So I'm thinking also of Regis Quinchinsky Paquette, mm-hmm. a young black and indigenous woman who felt her death while police were in her home. And Dondre Campbell, a young black man who was shot in his own home while having a mental health crisis. So I'm going to use this platform right now to amplify the demand to defund the police. Mm-hmm. And this means divesting funds from our billion-dollar police budget and it reallocating them to non-policing forms of public safety and community support like mental health and addiction services, housing, and other community services. My second public realm resolution would be to work on increasing washroom access in public space. As we have seen over the spring and the summer, we, we have been using public space in tremendous numbers and there's such a strain on infrastructure. So washroom access is so important, especially as many cafes and fast food joints close their washrooms from public access, forcing people to rely on uh, washrooms already in public parks. And so as the fall hit, many of these washrooms were closed because they're not winterized. So this is my resolution to call on the city to introduce requirements to include all season washrooms and all new public spaces of a certain size. Furthermore, the city must invest in winterizing the washrooms that we already have. And then finally, the city must address the needs of people living in encampments. So in the absence of housing, I believe the city should provide essential services such as washrooms and running water to people who are trying to avoid catching COVID in our overcrowded shelter system. Uh, My third public realm resolution involves the reimagining of the possibilities of public space. Uh, This spring, Torontonians will actually have the opportunity to reimagine and consult alternative uses for city-owned golf courses. Mm -hmm. So a coalition of food justice advocates have illuminated a possibility for these lands to benefit the nearby communities. And often these communities face food insecurity. Mm -hmm. So we can reimagine some of these spaces maybe to contain urban farms and markets 
this would provide the nearby communities with new skills and an opportunity to put their products to market. So there, there are a lot of different ways that we can reimagine how we use and interact with our public spaces. And I think that 2021 will be a fantastic year for us to uh, advocate for more just and inclusive public space. I'm Kara Shalou, and this is Spacing Radio. Broadcasting from the chair by my fireplace and definitely not a warm beach in St. Bart's, I'm Glenn Bowerman, and you're listening to the official podcast of Spacing Magazine. Coming up on the show, we talk about the anniversary of Plaza Pops, a strategy to activate strip mall parking lots and turn them into community hubs. Urban geographer Daniel Rotstein and landscape architect Brendan Stewart explain. But first, Sherry Kassman is a writer, artist, and musician. Throughout the pandemic, she's been an advocate for taking an abandoned sandy lot, formerly a school, and turning it into a public beach for socially distanced hangs. This beach has garnered great interest. It has its own Instagram account. There's even merch. How did a beach appear in Bloordale? Stand by. Sherry, all summer long, I've been thinking a lot about uh, impromptu or ad hoc uh, public spaces, mo- mostly because of the pandemic and just looking for safe ways that I can maybe see my friends at a distance. And uh, Bloordale Beach is something that really stands out as a kind of an ingenious way to uh, reclaim some space for the public realm. Uh, can you tell me a bit about h- how that began? Well, it wasn't originally thought of as something for the pandemic, what had happened was there had been a parking lot behind the school that was demolished and we could cut through from Bloor to Dufferin Mall through this parking lot. And they demolished the building and put up a fence around it. And that that made it impossible to cut through and everyone had to go around, which is a real drag. And so a friend of mine started taking down fences himself. Right. And then the pandemic started and he was still, you know, he would take fences down, though, and then TDSB people would show up to patch it back together because it's TDSB land. You know, there's a lot of space there. Mm -hmm. And I would sometimes go and walk around, talk on the phone. Um, My friend and I would sometimes have a drink there. But it was underused and it kept getting closed. And so the thought was... If this space could become more popular, maybe there'd be less of a chance of it getting shut down. Mm -hmm. And so I saw this guy lying down kind of sunbathing in May. And there's a lot of sand at the edges. Right. And I said, you know, we should make it Bloordale Beach. And my friend said, great, let's go make signs. And then we made signs. And that night we put signs up and then it was a beach. So it now serves the dual purpose of being a space where you can socially distance. It wasn't intended to be that. We did want to reclaim space and to have access that technically we have the right to. I mean, it's it's TDSV Lent, so it's public. But yeah, it's been great during the pandemic. You mentioned that there used to be a throughway. way. Uh, it was a good way to cut from Bloor Street down to the uh, Dufferin Grove Mall. Yeah. 
you're saying the the first problem was that they cut off that throughway that people used sort of a, around back of a three speed. Yeah. I mean, we were just trying to find a way to have a shortcut and then make the shortcut permanent. And we thought maybe if it was popular with a whole bunch of people, they, you know, would leave it open. And and that's what happened. I mean, they weren't always closing it a day later. They left it open for a good couple months in there. So for the past month, it's been closed with security guards standing around. Um, but now it's reopened. So it's been ongoing. It's It's been a really good run for the beach. I love the idea of calling a public space into being. In terms of uh, the summer use, what were the kind of peak visitation? Uh, you know, how many people, what, what kinds of different kinds of people? It was, it never was so popular that it was ever packed, ever, ever, which was great. Mm-hmm. Especially during COVID. Yeah. You know, I think people were reluctant to at the beginning. And so me and my pal would go and we brought chairs there for a day to try to demonstrate, you know, this is how you could use this beach. You could have a chair, you could sit, you could chat at a distance with your pal. But people would go to, you know, there's this one group of people who periodically would have, you know, low level music and distant kind of dancing and not more than, I don't know, like five people, not a party. So that was happening. I saw a very adorable date. Someone set up a uh, like a flotation device unicorn. I don't know, it was a blow up unicorn thing and in fancy drinks and umbrellas and things. Um, I saw another group of people, you know, having a kind of picnic. It was also great because I think several people used it as space to shoot their film or photo projects. Mm-hmm. And there are also people who are maybe kicking a ball around. Right. But it's primarily a throughway. So, yeah, sometimes people would hang out, especially while there are chairs there. Mm-hmm. I, I also wondered uh, if you had heard anything in an official capacity from, you know, city staff, local counselor. Has there been any response? There? Or is it just kind of like quietly no. doing your own thing? No, nobody wants to talk about it. So I ran into Anna Bailau and I said, how do you like the beach? And she said to me, oh, it's good. It's funny. You know, it's great during the pandemic. She otherwise won't re- respond to if, I mean, I recently wrote to her something about the useless security guards. I didn't get a reply. Same thing with Marit Stiles and Stephanie Donaldson, the trustee, is also not helpful. Like nobody's helpful. Right. And it's a TDSB thing. So it's basically up to them. I mean, I don't know if you saw this clip of John Tory. He mentioned beach recently. He mentioned the beach? Yeah. Okay, what happened was uh, the BIA, the Bloordale BIA was having a meeting and he had a 30 second clip to play at their Zoom meeting. Mm-hmm. And in his 30 second clip, he said something about how the beach, you know, it was so helpful during the pandemic and it saved businesses. So John Tory mentioned it, but I don't know if he actually knows what it is. Right. Were you hoping to hear a more official response or, or even, uh, you know, a little support from, from maybe yeah. the city? I mean, you mentioned Anna Bailao, that's the local councillor. Merritt Stiles yeah. is the, the local MPP. Yeah. And Stephanie Donaldson, the trustee, recently in this email. So 
I found out that the security guards were being paid $25 per guard per hour, which for two guards, 24-7 security is $36,000. Right. And that's a lot of money. Uh, to protect, you know, an empty lot. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. They put concrete barricades across the entrances where vehicles could drive in and dump stuff. So that's totally inaccessible. And then there are these guys. Yeah, there's a crazy amount of money. So I wrote to all the politicians and said, this is ridiculous. And Stephanie Donaldson said to me, she did say, thank you for the beach. It really helped during these, I don't know, unprecedented times or people really appreciated it. So I think Marit liked it too, but none of them would help make it an actual thing or stop the guards, like just let us have it because nothing crazy happened at the beach at all. Aside from the dumping, there weren't crazy parties. And I mean, people were respectful their neighbors there. I think the neighbors will have more of a problem once construction starts. And Stephanie Donaldson wrote to me that construction is imminent, which I don't believe. <laughs> Anyhow, it doesn't seem like anything's happening. And it's a shame that it's being policed. In terms of uh, the impetus for creating this space, was it just uh, because the opportunity was there? Was it a response to covid or uh, was it because uh, of a lack of public space or maybe a mix of all of them? It's a mix of all of them. I mean, once it became a beach, it was just fun to make it funny. You know, it just had a it has a lagoon and the lagoon is technically a puddle. So after it rains, there's this large-ish puddle. Right. And that's the lagoon. I made a sea turtle nesting area. <laughs> yeah. And there are these... Yeah, there are these turtles, and then eventually they laid eggs, and they all have eggs. I made a lot of signs, and my pal made signs. And we had, at one point, over 60 signs. I mean, that was one thing. I, I like the the funny aspect. And also with the social distancing, that's a huge thing. I mean, it did give people a lot of space to spread out. Mm -hmm. And I think it's it's more interesting if it wasn't a pandemic, it would be slightly less meaningful, maybe. Right. There'd be less urgency to creating that space. Yeah. I mean, there are other spaces just like it that are shut to the public, are used for nothing. It's just like wasted space. You might as well make it a beach. Well, Sherry, uh, it delighted me the whole summer long, and uh, I continue to follow the exploits of Bloordale Beach. Uh, I want to thank you for taking the time to speak with me. Thanks for uh, asking me the beach questions. <laughs> you can check out Sherry's book, Goodbye Galleria, all about the recently demolished Galleria Mall and what it meant as a time capsule and community hub at spacingstore.ca. Now, in 2019, a large team of people came together to transform 10 parking spots in the Wexford Heights strip mall parking lot, into a community space. There were wooden benches, tables, chairs, planters, and most importantly, people sharing a treat, listening to performances, or getting to know their neighbors. It was called Wex Pops, a case study and part of a broader Plaza Pops philosophy in how a small amount of public space can have major impact on a community. 
Urban geographer Daniel Rothstein and landscape architect and Guelph University assistant professor Brendan Stewart were two of the minds behind the project. My name is Daniel Rothstein. I go by the urban geographer. I'm an artist, writer, and cartographer. So my name is Brendan Stewart. I'm an assistant professor of landscape architecture at the University of Guelph. I wanted to begin by asking you guys to just describe the Wexpops project. The Wexpops project, you know, is a pilot project. It was sort of a, a proof of concept. And it's it's part of, I guess, this this larger initiative that we call Plaza Pops. And, you know, Plaza Pops is really about the idea of looking at suburban main streets, you know, places in a lot of Canadian and North American cities in the, in the post-war period that have these sort of wide arterial roads lined with commercial strip mall plazas. And sort of recognizing that most of this is actually privately owned. Um, meanwhile, it's 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 effectively where where public life is is happening largely in these communities. So these are these are existing sort of vibrant places, but there isn't necessarily maybe the the sort of physical space for communities to gather and for people to sort of rest and meet each other and relax and get some shade while they're shopping or while they're visiting some of the, the local services like libraries and, and, and churches or whatever might be in the communities. So Plaza Pots is really recognizing that this is where the public realm is in these places and that there are actually limited tools to, to sort of enhancing that, the public realm from, a, you know, from the experience of, a, of an individual, from a, a pedestrian and, and sort of community perspective. So it's, it's really like a pragmatic strategy to, to try to develop a, a model or a set of tools for enhancing the experience and, and the public life that can happen in these places. And so Wexpops was was our first pilot project to, to sort of test this idea. And the whole thing is is really a, a new model that partners with the local business community. And in the case of Wexpops, it was the Wexford Heights Business Improvement Area or BIA. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a number of granting agencies that sort of recognize the, the public interest in trying to improve the public realm for people. So it's, it was really our sort of our first sort of test case uh, and proof of concept to, to, to try to develop this idea further. Yeah, and the, the idea of POPs is a privately owned public space, which is often associated with new developments. But we're trying to find those POPs in the waiting and in parts of town that aren't experiencing a lot of new developments and, you know, testing new ways of activating and managing them. Right. In, in this case, uh, the inner suburb of Scarborough in Toronto. Uh, can you tell me a bit about Wexford Heights, the strip mall? Yeah, so the Wexford Plaza that we that Wexpops popped up in, it's notable because there was a movie about it, um, Wexford Plaza. It's a romance, that suburban romance. I, I recommend it mm-hmm. to the listeners. But it is uh, owned by the Kiriaku family, who are the owners of the Wexford Restaurant, which recently closed after 63 years in business. And they're very community-minded business family. They not only own Wexford Restaurant and Wexford Plaza, but several plazas in the neighborhood and beyond. And they were part of the original impetus to create the Wexford Heights Business Improvement Area. And BIAs were created, um, the first one in the 70s in Floor West Village, often were created with the idea of a traditional main street in mind. And Wexford Heights was one of the first BIAs to be in the inner suburbs, which has a much different character condition built for the scale of the car with a different set of needs. So that really speaks to the experimental nature of the Kiriaku family and the Wexford Heights 
VIA in general. They also do a annual street festival called the Taste of Lawrence. And it's nothing like the Taste of the Danforth because if you've ever been to the Taste of the Danforth, it's all about this like shuffle and everyone is squeezed together. And uh, the expansive space of the inner suburbs, you know, provides a lot more breathing room. And they take advantage of the strip mall parking lots and they set, you know, restaurants there set up their own little patios and it's very vibrant. And the neighborhood in general is, you know, the archetypal diverse, multicultural, interconnected uh, Toronto inner suburb. It's been called by Suresh Das, the food columnist, um, Shwarma Row, uh, because there's a lot of Middle Eastern places serving shawarmas, but there's also South Asian businesses and seafood restaurants and places like the Westford Plaza and Greek restaurants. And it's got everything you would, you would think you would find on a Toronto main street. Right. So it seems like a, an ideal neighborhood to to try this out for the first time, the, the concept of Plaza Pops. Yeah. Well, one of the troubles was, you know, this idea came out as kind of a pragmatic strategy, but it had never been tested. So we needed to find the one, the one strip mall in the city that would take a chance on us. And I think it was like, you know, the Kiriakou family, because of their experimental community-minded nature, they trusted us. They kind of got what we were going for. And without kind of understanding the full picture, decided that it was a good idea to work with us. So we're very grateful for that. I, I like to think it was like one of the only strip malls in the city who would take a chance of, on us in this early experimental phase. But now we have the proof of concept, we have the photos, we have the report, the video, and now people kind of understand what we're going for more. Yeah, you, you mentioned the video and I encourage listeners to uh, seek that out because it is stunning, very well shot and Anyone will easily get a sense of of what the project is, but uh, I'm hoping you can paint for the listeners. Uh, what is the experience of Wex Pops? You come upon this uh, Wexford Heights Plaza. What is it? What can you do there? Uh, what, what would a typical day at uh, Wex Pops be? Before jumping into to that question, Glenn, I think it's it's worth just um, mentioning and, and sort of underscoring how important the sort of participatory process was in in figuring out what you know, what this thing ought to be mm-hmm. and, and sort of balancing that with with our hosts, um, the, the Kiriakou family and the larger business community. So our, our working group, which represented, you know, a number of different sort of local organizations and, and sort of ratepayers groups and the business community and the local counselor's office and sort of, you know, on and on and on. We had 15 people in total and, you know, we had a series of, of workshops and open houses and we, we involved a bunch of students in developing ideas. But Really, the, the, the thing that resonated was the idea of creating like a, an oasis, something that, that would be really green and lush, uh, but also vibrant and colorful. And so those are the marching orders that, that came out of that process with the community. And so what we ended up creating and what, what you can sort of, I guess, I, I think you can really get a sense of it in, in the video and, and in the report is this, you know, this sort of enclosed, it, it's kind of like a little island. Like if you, if you imagine, you know, the, the parking lot is kind of the sea and then, and then the installation was this island that you would find your way into. And once you were inside, it felt kind of like an inner room. And, you know, it was, it was also, we were very conscious of making it uh, as safe as possible and making sure there were multiple sort of points to get in and out and that they were large enough that people had lots of options. But ultimately we were going for this sense of enclosure. So it was, it was very lush. We had, you know, over 500 plants. Most of them were native plants and some of them were edibles. You know, we had a, a pretty robust program of, of watering because, I mean, the other, the other part about the experience there it, it was, was the heat, right? This was in the, 
really, I mean, it was up for, for six weeks and a, a large portion of that was during a, a pretty remarkable heat wave. So figuring out how to create shade was, was, was a challenge, but also making sure that the plants were getting enough water. And that all worked out. And, and the plants, I mean, they, they grew a remarkable amount in six weeks and really created this, this kind of oasis condition. And then, you know, the other, the other part, I guess, that's the, the sort of physical space, but a, a big part of it is the programming that then happens. There's, there's sort of the everyday, you know, people coming in to wait for the bus or, or to sort of buy a coffee at one of the local restaurants or a meal and, and sit and meet a friend. But then there, we also hosted a series of events where we, we worked with Scarborough Arts, a local arts um, organization, and, and had a series of programmed evenings that featured dance and, and DJs and live music and, and a whole, a whole series of other things. So there were moments when it was quite active and it was, you know, it was quite a scene. And, and I guess like the juxtaposition of all of this kind of happening in a parking lot was, was kind of what made it so remarkable, <laughs> I think. Yeah, some highlights um, were we hosted uh, with the Working Women Community Center a pre-Caravana party for the local youth. And it, it culminated in a, in a dance battle, <laughs> mm-hmm. which was exquisite. And uh, another thing was, we didn't anticipate this and it was something we learned in the process, but kind of accommodating these very suburban forms of socializing, people socializing in, in their cars, between cars. And then the benches we created were the perfect height that if you were sitting on one, somebody could drive by, roll down their window, and you could have a conversation with them in the car and you in the Wex Pops. So that's something that's really important to this project, that it's creating a space through the community design process that is tailored to the unique needs of the inner suburbs and not just trying to assert kind of like a downtown idea of what a gathering space should be, but something that actually works with the ways people socialize and gather already there. And so this was for six weeks in the summer of 2019. It's been uh, over a year. And in that time, you've sort of taken stock of the project and the findings that came out of it. So you, you've published this report. And uh, I just w- wanted you guys to speak to the survey findings, especially in regards to the social, economic and environmental perspectives that you uh, analyzed uh, WexPops through. Broadly, you know, we wanted to combine the goals of city building with the goals of small businesses. And we think that, you know, those two things are barring past debates about bike lanes and stuff. I think we're coming to the conclusion within all of Toronto that these two things, a vibrant city that accommodates uh, social life and economic life is good for everyone. So that was kind of a broad idea. Yeah, and I think I think it's one of those things where, you know, we... we we designed into the project a whole bunch of opportunities to sort of collect data and try to measure the performance of the project, like how, how it was doing. And, and as you mentioned, Glenn, we, we sort of organized it in the report under these three sort of drivers, the, the social, the economic and the environmental. And I mean, really, the, I think our, our, our sort of takeaway is, is that it, it's, it's actually hard to parse these things. Like we, 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 we try to and we try to quantify a lot of it. And, and there, there is pretty compelling data, but it's really in, in the sort of like holistic overlapping, you know, intangible values that are sort of created. Like it's, it, you know, it's, it's the smiles, you know, and it's, it's the, the sort of good feeling and, and all of the little experiences that uh, were created for, for people in, in our working group and the local business community. One of the, one of the specific things that, that I think Daniel and I both think is, is pretty important, I guess, about what we found is that from a sort of demographic perspective, 
we measured who was there and what they were doing before and after. So it, it was sort of like a, you know, a public life study inspired by by Yang Zhao and and sort of his methods for for sort of understanding how how space works socially. Mm-hmm. And we found that you know there there was a much a much broader sort of age demographic that that used the plaza during the installation. And we also noticed a sort of more a healthier sort of gender split. Prior to the installation, it was it was a fairly male dominated space, you know, and and this this goes back also to to sort of what Daniel was saying about observing you know the social life that does happen in these places, and so uh, you know a lot of that is is sort of like leaning on columns and sitting on bollards and and sort of improvising where people are inhabiting space, but they're definitely inhabiting space, and I think one of the big takeaways is that we created a space that was more attractive to a wider set of the population, which is great because those people otherwise just don't have enough opportunities in, in these parts of the city. Mm-hmm. And another thing to note is there was still parking available, right. <laughs> which I think uh, was a, a big concern when we were shopping around and working with the BIA to find a site. And it, it's important to, to, to be sensitive to those needs, but uh, I'm glad to report that there was still parking available once Wexpops was up. And there was uh, the parking lot was fuller, which, you know, might indicate people coming to visit Wexpops and, uh, you know, that being a good for business kind of kind of angle. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, just building on this idea of more people coming. I mean, one of the the other goals that, you know, our working group set was this idea of, of sort of creating a landmark, like creating creating a destination and a, and a place that people would would maybe make a point of visiting and 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 check out and use that as a sort of gateway to the to the neighborhood. And, and, and we think that that's a really important aspect of, of this initiative from really from an economic development perspective because it, it is it is an opportunity to use design and placemaking and you know a public space project as part of the, the sort of toolkit that you know that the business community has whether it's a BIA or whether it's an individual landowner you know to, to try to attract a broader audience to the to the community to, to spend money in the community perhaps but also just to just to sort of come and and hang out so we we did we measured that by we had a dot map where we invited people who, who came to sort of indicate where they had come from. And, you know, we found that a, a pretty significant number of the visitors were, were coming from beyond the local neighborhood, quite a few from all across the city and, and the region. So that's another, another, I guess, finding that sort of came out of this that we think is pretty exciting. And Daniel mentioned that BIAs uh, typically in, in the beginning were organized around uh, main streets and that this is maybe not what people think when they think of main streets, uh, you know, these, this kind of inner suburban strip mall model is very common in, in areas uh, all over Scarborough, Etobicoke, uh, and, and I think in similar cities. We talk a lot about main streets and their survival even before the pandemic and now especially during the pandemic. I, w- I want to talk a little bit about, you know, thinking about main streets suburban style. Like the, these are vibrant places, these are community hubs, and uh, maybe they get overlooked and maybe something like this can change the conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, strip malls, I think, are having a moment now because people recognize how vibrant important they are as community hubs. But, you know, architecturally, they might not be the most beautiful things, but I think that it's the social life and, and the spirit of a place when we're talking about cultural heritage. We're not talking about bricks and mortar, even though some of these strip malls, like the Wexford Plaza, if you look behind, it's this beautiful, you know, yellow brick. It's it's not a bad structure. It has colonnades, but I think when we're thinking about main streets, 
and about the heritage of the city in general, I think we need to think a lot about the spirit of the place and the social life and how it's inhabited as opposed to, you know, the, the buildings, the bricks and mortar themselves, which is important, but, you know, they're, they're equal conversations. And then I think in relation to the strip malls, when they were first built in the post-war period, they were designed to be these community hubs. And I think they are functioning as designed and they can be thought of in relation to the fact that Toronto has so many uh, inter-suburban high-rises and that these commercial strip plazas can be thought of in relation to the density in the suburbs and that they're kind of an, an essential and unique thing to Toronto that we have such high-density, vibrant suburban strips. Yeah, and I, th- I think that you know main, main streets are, are such an important um, part of, of, you know, the, the sort of cultural and economic life of, of cities and neighborhoods. And, you know, I think this, this project really points out that we need sort of suburban specific strategies. Um, a lot of, a lot of the models and the tools that exist are, are sort of biased toward parts of our cities that were built before World War II and that are that more like the streetcar suburb sort of model with the, the high street and the sort of very walkable and human scale environment. And the exciting thing about the suburbs is that all of the good stuff is there. It's just a matter of of harnessing it in terms of sort of the, the communities that are there, right? And and the sort of cultural life and the creativity, like everything is there. It's just that there isn't sort of an easy sort of way to to unleash it, right? And to and to sort of allow it to sort of flow out um, in into the public realm. And so this project really is about main streets, and it's about a specific idea and tool, you know, that that maybe that maybe has some legs sort of broadly. And, you know, our current, our current work is actually trying to think about how, how this kind of scales up and out and becomes more than just a, a, a sort of pilot project, but, you know, a broader program perhaps. And, and so we're, we're actually working with the city of Toronto right now on a new, a new research project that's being funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council to try to figure out what a sustainable model for this might look like. And uh, because of the COVID pandemic, cities all over the world have had to kind of reimagine their outdoor spaces, a place where you can be out in the open air and, and socially distance, all those things. It's, it's kept some businesses afloat throughout this summer when uh, the numbers were a little bit better. You could see people dining outside. In, in Toronto, we had the Cafe TO program, which helped businesses sort of extend their businesses outdoors, out over, sometimes into the public realm. And... Uh, this project, uh, this kind of mentality seems uh, well suited to adapting to COVID, which we'll still probably li- be living with uh, into 2021, with the important distinction that this is an attempt to create public space, whereas something like Cafe TO was, was uh, more of extending the, the private public space. Yeah, exactly. Like in many ways, Plaza Pops is extremely well suited to the current moment with its focus on, you know, economic development and outdoor gathering. And as we prepare for a 2021 edition, COVID physical distancing considerations will be part of the design language. I'm glad you pointed out and highlighted that distinction, Glenn, because it is it is a subtle one. And it's actually a really tricky one from a, a design perspective, like figuring out how how to create these spaces that people, when they walk by them, they perceive them as as public and and not as something that they have to pay to enter, you know. And and we we did run into that 
sort of misconception during our pilot project. Um, and, and we sort of understood that through, through interviews. And, it, it, and so that's a bit of a, on the one hand, it's maybe a bit of a design and signage challenge, but it, it's also a, you know, just creating more of these and having them up for longer so that people kind of get used to them issue we think the next private pops will definitely include lots of signage that says public free <laughs> come on in right. on a bed style and, and you know <laughs> <laughs> that's the solution we think yeah <laughs> well it's unfortunate that the pandemic uh was the catalyst for so much thinking about uh expanding the the public realm but uh what are some lessons that you hope that uh we we learn from this pandemic and and that we keep as we go forward and talk about designing the public realm well, yeah, I think a big one is the potential of these overlooked spaces, uh, curbside parking and parking lots as, you know, unlocking this quality of life that all of us need to thrive and, and make space for social connections. And uh, what I'm really into the Cafe TO um, initiative, uh, but in many ways, it's a, it's a privatization of public space. And I hope that going forward when we're thinking about activating these spaces we're thinking about access and we're thinking about who gets to be there and who it serves so that's one thing i hope is taken forward yeah and the, the, i guess the quick thing i'll add is just um you know i hope that one of the big lessons learned and sort of takeaways from from covid and and all that sort of all that all the things that covid has shone a bright light on in terms of broader issues of of sort of spatial justice and and equity is is the importance of you know a really um, deep engagement process when when we're creating the public realm that we're really working as much as we can in in more of a sort of co-creative way and that it, it's all sort of founded on a sort of principle of of transparency and and trust and and strong relationships and I think that you know that that's required in in any sort of public realm related project but i think it's particularly important in working in communities that have historically been sort of less well served because there's a lot of need and there's a lot of uh need to sort of deliver right and 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 to do things that that are that are sort of are genuine and 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 sort of based on what the community actually would like to see well daniel brendan i want to thank you so much for uh taking the time to speak with me <laughs> thanks so much glenn we really appreciate it You can also read a conversation I had with Daniel in the latest issue of Spacing Magazine. The theme of the issue is how main streets can survive the pandemic, and I spoke to Daniel for a piece about the survival of strip malls like Wexford Heights Plaza and the important role they play in the inner suburbs. And that is the show. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked this episode, please tell your fellow tobogganers, beach enthusiasts, and local convenience store owners. As well, please share, subscribe, or give us a rating on iTunes. It will help us reach new listeners. Special thanks to Kara Shalou, who you heard at the top of the program. She is a public space researcher and writer, as well as an organizer with the Toronto Public Space Committee. I make this podcast with Neil Hinchley, who composes our music, and you can find that music on SoundCloud at Track 82. That's all spelled out. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or scoops, you can reach us at Twitter at Spacing Radio, that's all one word, or email me at glennbowerman at spacing.ca. 
That's G-L-Y-N-B-O-W-E-R-M-A-N at spacing.ca. Visit our website at spacing.ca or visit our city store at 401 Richmond Street West, which is open for curbside pickup. Or you can visit the Spacing Store at spacingstore.ca. And don't forget to pick up the latest issue of Spacing Magazine titled Will Main Streets Bounce Back from the Pandemic? Available now. In the meantime, we wish you a far better year ahead than the one we put behind us. Cheers. Cheers.